Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk with Chris DeFirio about coffee and leadership and where they meet. Welcome to The Indispensables. Our guest today is Chris DeFirio. He's the founder of Keys to the Shop podcast and consulting. Chris is an award-winning coffee professional and coffee shop consultant. He's got decades of experience in the retail specialty coffee industry. Uh, I am proud and pleased to say I've been a guest on his show three times. He uh, is kind enough to return the favor and bring some of his wisdom here to some of our listeners, Chris DeFerio, welcome to The Indispensables. I am very honored. Big fan of your work. Uh, obviously, I've had you on the show three times, so <laughs> that shows. So I'm really glad to be here. Thank you. Oh, well, it's great uh, to have you, and, and I'm tickled. And uh, you are yourself a great speaker and a great trainer and a prolific consultant. I know that uh, it's more than coffee shop entrepreneurs who can learn from you. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the great things about uh, leadership and management is no matter what industry you find yourself in, if you dig deep enough, you find kind of a common route and it can be applied across industries. Yeah, I think that's true. So so for those who don't know about you, I mean, if you don't know about Chris DeFerio, like what's your problem? But for those who don't know your story, what, what's your story? How did you, How did you get to where you are? You know, I, I, I feel like you know, it's been 22 years of doing coffee and pretty much straight out of high school is where I started to cut my teeth in coffee. I was a, a student of a, uh, in a ministry school right out of high school. It only lasted for about a year or so in the Midwest. And uh, afterwards, I really just didn't know what to do with my life. I spent a lot of time in coffee shops and, you know, reading, just hanging out, honestly. As I was trying to discover, you know, what I wanted to do as a young man, um, one day I, I literally just—it was almost an epiphany. I said, I, I, "I love coffee. I'm very fascinated by the flavors, the ambiance of coffee shops. I'm going to do this." And it only took that revelation for me to dive down the rabbit hole. And um, you know, way back in the day, 1999 or so, you know, what was the internet at that time? I took full advantage of, and was um, immediately immersed in this world that uh, has had me for 22 years. You know, I was quickly became a barista at a coffee shop locally, and I got fired pretty quickly, also from my first coffee job. Wait, 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 wait! Now, now this is coming from a U.S. barista <laughs> championship finalist and a three-time latte art champion. How did you get fired from this job as a barista? Uh, you know, I like to say that I, I might have let myself go as well uh, if I was a manager of, <laughs> of any merit at the time. Um, I had a lot of passion for what I did, although you know, I didn't really have a lot of perspective for what the owners or the manager, my manager at the time, really wanted me to do. I knew what I wanted to do. And I knew that I would be a great coffee professional and asset to this company and all this. However, in the immediate, I, I think I lost track of that, the immediate needs of that business. It was a slower shop. And I'm sure they looked around and said, well, how can we trim the fat? And they're like, well, that guy, you know, he looks... <laughs> 
very passionate yet um, rather useless for what we want. And so that was really difficult to go through because I, I was in love with the industry, still am. And so I just had to, I talked to a restaurant owner, a former restaurant owner friend of mine who really helped me through it, said, this stuff happens. Don't let it stop you. And I didn't. And I, I just kept going and became uh, even more immersed in, in different roles uh, for varying different shops throughout the years. Um, some good, some bad. There's a variety of um, reputable establishments and then hole-in-the-wall establishments and I like to tell people that I've been blessed to be a part of smaller to mid-sized operations when they've been at an inflection point, which means you know, you're know you going to have an organic growth of your business to a certain point, And then you realize that you have to sort of get it together. And I was lucky enough to be one of the people in several of these places where I was part of that get it together crew. And that was really a privilege that helped me develop who I was and am as a as a leader throughout the years. And as you mentioned, the competitions, you know, it's not just that I was making uh, my mark in the industry by being a, a, an employee. I was also taking part in the industry at large, the community of specialty coffee competitions like latte art competitions, which I've, I've won uh, several times and have been a judge of that competition pretty much since uh, 2004. I also was doing uh, barista competitions, which is slightly different than latte art in that it's a lot more, there's a lot more drinks to be served and more details to be tended to, but it's all a part of challenging yourself. So I was getting it from all angles, being challenged and growing in the bar, behind the bar and in my administrative work, and then simply having personal goals as a professional that I, where I'd compare myself against other baristas on the world stage. And that was uh, how I came up in the industry. And it was a, a very rich experience these uh, 22 years. What, what I love about you and what you do is uh, you make it clear that coffee's a serious business, man. And, 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 and it's, it's delicious. And, but some people look at, at a subject from the outside. And they think, wow, there must be so much to this. But a lot of people look at something they don't know about from the outside and they think, well, how much could there be to this? Um, and and, and you're, you're a great one for unpacking just how much is involved in the food group of coffee, the nuances of coffee itself, uh, and then the complexity of running, running a business of any kind. Tell us about, a little bit about the, your passion for coffee itself and then for the coffee business and all the dimensions of it. Yeah, that's a, a great way to put it, that a lot of people fall into those two groups where there's a dismissive tone toward a thing, and then there is a curiosity. And I think anybody who discovers complexity can either be you know, inspired to be fearful, if you can use the word inspired that way, or they can be curious and see it as a great opportunity and an adventure. And I felt like I fell into the latter category. My passion for coffee, as I mentioned, I was a customer of coffee shops and noticing I could taste the differences between the different origins of coffee, between a Guatemala or a Papua New Guinea and how they had the, the terroir or the what's called the taste of the place, the, the impact of the environment on the, the end flavor. And that was sort of the clue, just like if somebody was looking for gold and they found a vein of gold in, in, in a dig, they would think, 
Well, there's more there. So we have to dig deeper because we've struck gold. And that's what I felt. Um, my passion also was for the feeling that I got as I was being treated to this uh, this complexity in a cup, right? A feeling I got, I realized through observing and, and then working, of course, behind the bar, it doesn't happen by accident. It's just like any business. There's a lot of gears moving interlocking behind the scenes. If you look at a watch, uh, the, a customer would be like the person looking at their watch and saying, oh, that's what time it is. It's, it's taken for granted. It, it, it provides a function. I'm going to go to the coffee shop and get my coffee. That's, that's fine. That's what customers should do. They should enjoy themselves. We in the industry know that underneath the watch face, there is a lot of different interlocking parts. And uh, as a value chain and supply chain from the farm to the cup, there's already a ton of complexity. Now, in the coffee business itself, there's the decisions you make from the layout of your bar, how what your menu is comprised of, how you hire people, how you care for your people after you actually get them. Those are the things underneath the watch face of a coffee shop that I personally, I, I want to see continue to be improved upon because the way people enjoy coffee, the way I enjoyed coffee was that somebody thought about those details so that I could enjoy this cup of coffee. And when we don't think about those details, and as professionals, we can have that dismissive attitude like, oh, this is just how you start a coffee shop, or you know, this is how you lead people. That's easy. Just tell them what to do, all that stuff. You can taste in the cup or you can experience in the coffee shop that lack of care or that dismissive attitude. And so everything I do with Keys to the Shop podcast, which we've gone on for five years now, over five years as a podcast, and my consulting focuses on helping people build like foundations for attending to those details so that everybody can enjoy it, including them as owners. Because if you're a, a business owner who's entered into this sort of willy-nilly and, and not with a respect for and a fascination for these details, it's not going to be very enjoyable for you or anybody that's involved. So that's kind of what, what drives me today. Uh, it's what I love doing. Do you, do you ever get in, have you ever been involved with the actual agricultural element with growing coffee? No, that would be fascinating, actually. Um, there's a lot of people who do. Uh, that are coffee professionals that used to be baristas and shop owners, and then they, they start getting involved in farming. But most of the farming happens in the communities that are already, they're, they're native to those origins. And then we work in tandem with them through importing, exporting, et cetera. Yeah. Have you, have you ever gone to visit them? Once, uh, a long time ago. It was a, a trip where I was hired to represent the Specialty Coffee Association as a latte art instructor for baristas in Nicaragua. And that was really great. <laughs> I, uh, I was in the early phases of discovering I had a, a raw coffee or green unroasted coffee allergy. So it was a little bit <laughs> disheartening, but also exhilarating at the same time. And so that's why I've, I've not really got into roasting myself is because you have to handle the raw product. And I unfortunately have been sorted into the group of people that really can't get too close to it. Yeah, there's some kind of karmic poetry in that, right? <laughs> yes, it's, it's poetry. It's, um, I prefer to think of it as a help to keep me focused. There's a lot of different directions you can go in coffee, and sometimes obstacles can be seen as 
depressing or they can be seen as blessings in disguise. So I, I try to think about it like the latter. Well, listen, Moses never got to the promised land either. So uh, uh, have you, uh, are you, uh, do, do you advise uh, uh, coffee manufacturing companies? Like, uh, are you, are you on the board of Folgers or something or Maxwell House or? <laughs> I, I don't know that any of my words would have any impact on, on their agricultural uh, practices or, or their ethics as companies, which I, I would be delighted if they would, because um, I, I fall into the category of, of specialty coffee, which is a higher grade of coffee, both in quality and ethics. So there's a, there's a commodity grade of coffee that Maxwell House and Folgers and other larger scale brands that source for their consumers that are paying very low prices for coffee, they are buying based on price and they're buying very poor quality coffee that does need to get purchased. You know, farmers do need to sell their coffee. Uh, in specialty coffee, we try to set a high bar and inspire farmers to continue to develop higher grades so that you know, we buy more of that particular coffee. And by the way, let's not lose that you said set a high bar, and I hope you meant <laughs> bar, it. right? Oh, yeah. Boom. And uh, so, uh, so, but but you have worked for the the specialty coffee association. Who what, are, are are there other um, sort of specialty coffee companies? Like who who is it? Who it seems like you should be because you are one part preacher, right? It seems like you could be a big part of this industry. Uh, even more than you are. I mean, right? For for those who are into you and your message and what you do, you're the guru. Um, so, uh, do you have an interest in that in advising these companies? Well, I mean, if any companies want to reach out and get get that kind of advice advice from me, then surely that would that would be interesting. Um, my focus as a consultant is the the people that I, I usually hear from, of course, come from usually from the podcast. And I talk mostly to retailers, people that are opening coffee bars or people who have coffee bars or a series of coffee bars and they want to have someone come in and help them with scaling their business or they have somebody to come in and, and help with uh, uh, their management team, give a workshop with their management team. And I've got people on all spectrums of, of the coffee shop uh, world that I'm working with currently and that's been my focus is coffee retail. So within that category, I'm, that's usually where people find me. I don't know that as an expert in, in that area, I would be of much use to people who want advice about agricultural practices because that's really not my, my forte. But there are plenty of large scale retailers out there who do set the precedent for what customers, how customers think about specialty coffee because branding for better or for worse will tell people what they can expect or what they should expect. Now branding isn't always true. Marketing is, is not always true. This is this happens when people go to get a job and the job says this is the kind of company this is and then they start working there and they realize that is not what this is. Uh, so in a coffee shop you can have the best marketing team that says this is high grade specialty coffee and we're all about culture and caring for our staff and and everything is quality but you talk to the staff and you realize it's it's definitely not the way it is and so one of the beauties of being a consultant is I'm not an employee I don't have to worry about getting fired necessarily <laughs> um and and so my my goal is to be able to say hey we have this stated goal it's even marketed this way 
let's put action to those values in these ways. And usually when you're reaching out to a consultant, you're at least halfway open to some advice. And the, the higher up you get, the less it hurts to spend money. So I understand that the buy-in for taking advice from a consultant is a little bit less because you, you can take it or leave it. It's not that much money. We didn't, we're not out of that much. But when I work with smaller to mid-sized coffee shops, even large, what would can be considered larger coffee retailers, it's still a big deal to them. It's a, it's a mindset that really determines whether or not somebody will listen to advice or just collect advice because they feel like it's the thing you should do. You know, hire a consultant, listen to them and be like, cool, well, at least we explored an option. We check, we check that box. Yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking like, so, okay, the specialty coffee suppliers, like who, who, are, who meets your standards of uh, specialty coffee? I mean, you must have a likely suspects list and there must be more, there's got to be steps in the process between the farm in Nicaragua. And what are the steps? How does the coffee get from the farm into the coffee shop? Yeah, well, typically the coffee will obviously become harvested. It'll be get harvested from the farm, and then it will be exported through you know various export companies that work with importing companies to bring in the green coffee into warehouses in different coastal cities. Usually, it's coastal cities. The other places like Cafe Imports, for example, is in Minneapolis. You've got Royal Coffee in New York and also in California. Uh, there's a smaller importers that work directly with farmers. They focus on smaller harvests of coffee. And in specialty coffee, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, that importer will then be, uh, they'll put out a sheet of offerings that roasters who open coffee shops and roasteries will say, well, they have these this raw product, this green coffee from these countries. Here now are the qualities of this coffee that the importer says are there. So if in Nicaragua, for example, if the, a Nicaraguan coffee farm exports their coffee and an importer brings it in, in the US, for instance, that importer will roast that coffee. They will grade it and roast it and all that stuff. They will put that information out for prospective buyers of that green coffee to choose whether or not they want to roast it and serve it to their customers based on the qualities of that coffee. You'll have a sheet of coffees that range in uh, central, from Central, South American, African, Southeast Asia, yeah, et cetera. So that's usually then where roasters purchase their coffee from. And that raw coffee then gets roasted, finally brewed by either the roaster's wholesale clients who have coffee shops or the roaster themselves uh, may have a client or, or may have a coffee shop that they then display their coffees in the cup to the customer. So it goes from farm, that's basic uh, rundown of the supply chain from farm to cup. So is the, the importer is usually an intermediary and not the roaster. Right. And is the roaster, because uh, uh, so, I take it there are some coffee shops where they actually do the roasting. Yeah, well, there's a lot. These days, the roaster retailer model is very, very common and popular. And the roasters themselves will skip the importers and they will go to the either go directly to the farm and broker deals with the farm owners for 
entire harvests of coffee, or they will work with other uh, people who own roasters and have like a roasters cooperative where they agree to purchase certain lots of coffee and distribute it amongst themselves. So si- similar to other agricultural co-ops. Yes, I- except that with specialty coffee, there's a lot more transparency in the supply chain than there is, say, if you wanted to bring in specialty peppercorns. There are specialty spice companies out there, but the the uh, traceability of, well, what field and what farm and, and et cetera did that peppercorn come from, it's just not there because even still within that community, you know, things like peppercorns are still more commodified than coffee. Coffee has done a lot of work. Specialty coffee has done a lot of work to create traceable origins so that we can improve the the ethical practices behind the cup. And, and that's what a lot of uh, specialty coffee banks on is we're not just having high quality coffee here at the expense of all the humans behind it. We're trying to make sure that everybody along the value chain is cared for. And so that's the ethical dimension. It is. And, and that's why you see labels like Fair Trade or, or um, Transfair USA and Rainforest Alliance and other labels that people put on bags or organic. They're all designations that signify some aspect, some ethical aspect, either environmentally, financially, or socially, has been looked after to some degree. That doesn't mean they're perfect. It just means that here now is a bag of coffee that meets the standards of this label. And people are coming up with you know, iterations of these standards that are higher and more excellent and better all the time. Just generationally, we're trying to improve as we go. That ethic, I think, applies also to the coffee shop, which is where I spend a lot of my time is, yes, you know, there might be a coffee roaster out there who has a coffee shop who cares greatly, deeply for the farmer's well-being and does great with the ethics of, of the uh, value chain up to the point of the coffee shop. And at that point, the needs of the staff and of that retail expression are how would you put it? I guess they were, they're just assumed that they're taken care of. And, and that's, that's a big miss for us in the industry. And a lot of people are turned away from specialty coffee because of bad experiences they have in coffee shops that charge, you know, justifiably, they'll charge a lot of money for coffee that takes a lot to make. But when you're claiming to be special, which you do, that's called specialty coffee for a reason, the experience has to be special, both for the staff and for the customer. And, and as I said earlier, that doesn't happen accidentally. That's something that takes a great deal of, of craft and attention. And when it come, when you get into the, the coffee uh, shop itself, so like, do you have an opinion about Starbucks? Yeah, <laughs> I do. Um, you know, there's a lot of animosity that people kind of throw around at Starbucks. It, the thing that we have to bear in mind, and I think as I get older, it's easier for me to have a more tempered mindset towards these things. We are nothing without history. What has come before us has laid the groundwork for who we are today. Uh, a cynical view would say, oh, well, you know, Starbucks is a great the great media, mediocre example that we can juxtapose ourselves against. And so I'm glad they're there. Well, that's true in a lot of cases, unfortunately. You can't get as big as they are without embracing a certain degree of mediocrity, although it is consistent, which in this world of coffee is absolutely a huge asset to have uh, that specialty coffees retailers often lack. 
But the I think a, a more generous and more truthful perspective of it is that they cut a path. They're, they clear cut in America the ability for people to justify spending certain amounts of money on coffee that was special. And they paved the way for us to do what we do today. And so Starbucks, while I don't say that people should mimic what they do, I think they have a lot to learn from them. Like I said, there is at Starbucks, they, I, I think they may still call it the great or big green book. There's operational principles, there's SOPs, there's training modules. They're structured. They have to be. You know, we talk about the E-Myth uh, book with Michael Gerber talking about, uh, you know, what McDonald's brings to the industry of fast, you know, fast food, even just what people expect from food service. So if you're watching Netflix and you see a chef's table, that's not McDonald's. However, I would argue that lots of those people could learn about efficiency from something from McDonald's, you know, in the way that they operate their their places. That doesn't mean that looking at the positive thing about something that doesn't represent your values as much doesn't mean that you're accepting everything about them. It's a nuanced view, in my opinion. So yeah, they've, they've allowed us to do what we've done. And, and I'm guessing that uh, you would have plenty of advice for Starbucks. Yeah, it depends on uh, you know what they want advice about. Um, I, I imagine if, if they reached out, there would be different um, elements of parts of their shop, like you know how they train their managers. Um, and there's things that I could still learn from the people that they use to train their managers as well. You know, I've had people from Starbucks on my show, people that have. Uh, like Major Cohen, who is just one of the higher ups at Starbucks in foundational and developing the Starbucks Reserve concept. That's a high end Starbucks concept around the world. Wrote the Coffee for Dummies book recently. And there's a lot of great, great people that work in that company that have done great things in coffee. So, and actually, I did train with, uh, I was hired through an espresso machine company to do some training at the Chicago Starbucks store at one point. So technically I, I <laughs> in a small way did get hired by Starbucks in a roundabout way. Yeah. I mean, so I agree with you, whether it's McDonald's or Starbucks, you know, the systems, practices, competencies, the structure, the discipline, the scalability, uh, there's, there's, there's uh, lessons in efficiency and effectiveness to be learned. And I agree with you. I, I think, you know, you don't have to embrace everything about anyone in order to learn from them. You can even learn from evildoers, you know, if, if you know, at least you can learn what not to do. Right. But I'm, I'm guessing uh, your target is higher end. Your target is, but, but, but do you serve chains? Like, are you comfortable getting involved with somebody who, what they're trying to do is a much better version of Starbucks, let's say, but what they really want to do is a franchise. Is that is that consistent with your approach? Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, it's not it's not necessarily the model itself because the model is kind of a uh, you know it's like tofu. It just takes on the flavor of whatever it's around. You know, they, I mean, you can have a chain of stores that is there in the community and doing wonderful things for the community. Like in the Midwest, they have a chain called Bigby Coffee and they strive to treat their customers and their staff so, so well. I had one of the founders on the show and it's a large chain. So it's not that, oh, big is bad because big actually in the right hands can do more good. So who who I gravitate towards depends on 
what it is they want to do with the power that they have in their position. Uh, so there are people that I have through interviewing for potentially working together that I've just said, it's just not the right fit. Because I can tell after 22 years, I can tell where your heart is. I can tell where you're going with this. And I don't want to foist upon the world of coffee that I love more dysfunction. It's kind of against why I'm here doing what I'm doing to begin with just to make money, that would be silly. What's important to me is, first of all, that my integrity is intact. <laughs> and second of all, that I know I'm working with somebody who is uh, a people first type of person and or company. And that doesn't just go away when they start to become big. On the show, we talked, we talked several times about things like scaling values. And there are people out there whose main concern is not so much how big can we get, but how consistent can we be while we grow to the size that we need to be. That, I think, is a lot more of a, a, a mature perspective on, on business rather than just being ambitious, you know, wanting world domination. So that latter part, that world dominating kind of like, let's just make a bunch of cash. Are you in? It doesn't sound like I'm in. No. <laughs> So, so, uh, so, so is your lens when you go work with uh, a coffee shop, like where do you start? Do you kind of audit? Okay, let's see what you guys are doing. Let's see how you're doing it. Let's see where there are opportunities to do what you're already doing more, better, faster. Or is it, do you start with quality? Uh, you know, eliminating error rate? Or do you start with the sort of more interesting part of quality? I always say, like, what is quality? It's negative error rate plus intangibles like beauty. And uh, in this case, it's, you know, uh, aroma or something. So where do you start? How do you how do you get started? You know, I like what you said there, a negative error rate. Uh, when I do spe uh, speeches and things at, at trade shows, I like to refer to that as negative white noise or the, the ab impact of absence. You, if you're used to the sound of your air conditioner and you're reading a book and it shuts off, all of a sudden you notice it. And there's a certain degree of uh, acceptable errors that people are experiencing throughout the coffee world that if you eliminate them, people walk in and they're like, oh, there's something slightly different about that. I don't, I don't know. Like it's like you said, this intangible thing. It's like the air conditioner of, of negativity just shut off and you're drawn in. And, and so I think um, where I start with people depends on where they're starting. So I work with people from, you know, ground up. So I have several people who are in the process of starting coffee shops. And then there are people who already have coffee shops. The first group of people is usually a conversation around values and figuring out what they're just kind of figuring out what their goals and values are. And we build operational procedures, SOPs, job descriptions, even the menu based on those values because they have to be integrated and seasoned within the whole operation in order for the kind of culture that they really do want to grow to actually grow. It's like creating a good soil for things to be planted in. And then we just layer on different things you know, along the way throughout the months of working together and coaching calls, et cetera, where we're developing the menu, job descriptions, policies, answering questions, and helping advise through the process. But it's all with that bedrock of what's our goal? What are our values? How are we caring for this while we're creating an SOP on how to clean the bathroom? Right, right. Do, do you do design and layout and all that? 
I've done that several times for clients, you know, from pretty basic things to more complex, you know, three-dimensional drawings that people can kind of walk through with me. I mean, do you go through like an equipment list and vendors of choice? And uh, do you you have a team that goes in and and will build out the coffee shop? No, not that. So what I usually do and have usually when I'm doing any kind of layout, they already have a designer potentially that they have hired. Uh, architectural slash design firm that picks out color swatches and textures and things like that. But what I do is, you know, say, look, this is how the customer flow should be. Here's how the barista, the bar behind the bar should be set up. And we'll already have to have had the menu designed by this point, because the whole point of going into a cafe or a, a kitchen or a restaurant is the fact that they're going to execute a menu. Otherwise, what are you there for? So if you're not going to design your bar around your menu, you're going to introduce a lot of bottlenecks and baristas will curse your name under their breath during the busy times. Uh, It's just, I've seen it all. And so half of what I do is helping people sort through how to prioritize the things that they have full knowledge that they need to do. And then also bring up to them the things that they've never thought to think of along the way. Now, the people who already have coffee shops have already made these decisions. And so sometimes it'll be a specialized project where it's all about, you know, we want to upgrade who we are and what we do. Similarly, we'll start with values and then we'll get a a hit list of things that we need to address first. It's either in the order of things that have the most leverage um, or make the biggest impact. Or if they have a, a crew of people who are resistant to change, we'll start with small wins and we'll develop from there. And again, there's a lot of variety in that. So with existing retailers, uh, the assessment that you mentioned, yes, that I've done this where we, I say we, but you know, keys to the shop consulting is, is myself. I will go to your coffee shop and sit there uh, from morning until night for three, four days. And I will be actively asking questions, investigating, writing notes, and creating a report that is based on the what I you know think of as my three pillars of, of focus, which is operations, people, and quality. All the things you can think of in a coffee bar fall underneath those categories. Yeah. And I mean, gosh, that's probably true of nine out of 10 businesses. If not, I'm trying to think of a business where that's not true. Yeah. And and so you you come up with this list of here's my observations of all of these things. Here's some solutions. Here's how I think we need to order our subsequent coaching calls afterwards. So we come up with maybe uh, every other week for six months or four months or so, we're going to get on these calls and in a collaborative consulting relationship, work through the things that were observed. And you really, in a lot of cases, I can't be there and it's hard because, I mean, it's a budget issue, honestly, because, you know, it's more expensive to bring somebody out to your space. But being there and seeing how people are interacting with the owners, how they're interacting with customers, it reveals an incredible amount of information. And this is why, you know, in the uh, Toyota production system, they have that whole concept of Gemba, of taking a walk, being on the floor to see what's happening, because most owners and managers feel pretty uncomfortable with their authority to begin with. And they kind of get sucked into the, the, the screen of their phone and their computer and they, they stop seeing their impact on the business. And so I come in and I say, hey, did you realize that, for example, you're very harsh with your staff and they will not see it because they're not looking for it. 
or I'll say here in this particular location, the way that people are, are working, they're on their phones most of the time. And I don't know if you realize, oh, I never get out to that store. And that's why the sales are down because people see that the baristas are just like out to lunch most of the time. Just a couple of examples of hundreds of things you could see when you're in that space that honestly, if if you're listening to this and you're an owner, I mean, you could see them too if you chose to see them. It, this, is, this is one of those things I tell uh, people is that especially when you've scaled to a certain size um, and you have delegated authority to a manager and even an operations manager, you've got a lot of word crafting that goes into these job descriptions because it's a scary prospect to give away this kind of decision-making power, at least to you. And so you want to make sure like, gosh, darn it, I'm going to pay the salary. I got to make sure they know what their responsibilities are. But what we don't think about is, well, what are you going to do? <laughs> and now that you've given this like very detailed and structured analysis of, of, of what this person should do, what's your role? And so everyone just defaults to being like the chief vision officer. You know, it sounds like this advice uh, is not just good for coffee shop entrepreneurs, but this advice is good for anyone in hospitality. And I would go further and say that the lessons you're talking about, the kind of approach that you're talking about, paying attention, taking care, looking at operations, looking at quality, looking at the people, and, and making important strategic decisions about that, that, that would be good advice for any business. Yeah, I agree. And frankly, it's a good way to live your life. It, 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 not to get too deep into the you know psychoanalytics of <laughs> all of the interplay between life and work, but we project different aspects of how we believe the world is and who we are onto our staff and onto the work. Business is, is one of the great coffee gurus of our time. David Schomer has said, you know, it's a distillation of the personality of the owner in a lot of ways. And so if you, for instance, are very impatient with yourself, if you're a perfectionist who has no patience with your own ability to take on new skills and you, you know, all that stuff, that, well, it's obvious that you're going to treat your staff that way. So we have this mentality that we're going to get better at work by practicing skills only while at work. But the way I think about it is if you want to develop a different approach and mindset towards problem solving and relationships and the workplace, it is likely that you need to learn how to fully integrate that mindset shift into other areas of your life as well. Different relationships that you have outside of work, even conversations that you have with yourself. So we don't really talk about this, for example, very much. And it, I think is going to be an episode we come out with here at Keys to the Shop. Self-awareness, if I, if I talk to you about self-awareness, Usually what you're going to get back is a list of negative character traits. When I say, oh, I'm very self-aware, I'm a procrastinator, uh, I have a quick temper. So those are the things that we pride ourselves on being self-aware of. Because of that negative bent, we typically go that way as a manager or a boss too. We find everybody else's weaknesses, you know, and then we say, oh no, it's okay. I'm, I'm that way too. I'm self-aware too. We're neglecting the positive attributes. You're not really self-aware. You're only half self-aware. Sure. I mean, as an employer, as a manager, um, if you want to reinforce behavior, you got to notice the behavior you're trying to reinforce. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's true as an individual. I think that's a good point that, you know, what went right today? What did I do well today? I want to try and do that again tomorrow. 
if you know your positive impact on your workplace, if you know the kind of things that you do and say that really energize people, that it's more likely that you're going to do those things too, rather than saying, oh, I'm going to avoid doing the things that are bad, which is fine to say, but you have to have something to replace that or else it's like a vacuum. Not to bring up Michael Gerber again, but you know he has another book about the e-myth manager talking about you know, oftentimes we'll just go into work and we have nothing. We, we haven't really developed a personality. We expect the job to actually develop us as people. And so we're just a vacuum and we just we suck in whatever, you know, when you break a vacuum, that's what happens. And so in this case, it's like, if you just focus on trying to eliminate errors, for example, as we were talking about that white noise earlier, and you try to do that with yourself too, and you don't focus on those good things and celebrating those things, then you're just going to invite back different problems, you know, different dysfunctions, not uh, the positive opposites. Yeah, yeah. You got, like I always say, you got to keep score when people are winning. And you can't just keep score when people are losing. But I guess what I'm hearing from you is you got to do that for yourself too. Yeah, well, you know, you have uh, a, a lot of pressure on you, especially if you're a manager, I think. Um, you have a boss to please, you have customers and your staff to please. For a large part of what I think is if if you're in leadership, the people who you lead are your customers. You know, I talk to people that you know have managers and say your managers are your customers, and you would never think to offend your customers the way that you would readily and regularly offend your managers or uh, treat them in in such a way that you would never do that to your customers. And so I think that mindset shift of of servant leadership is also really helpful. You take on the identity of a particular type of person. And it's not just fake it till you make it. It's actually something you believe. That's why when I say I work with people who want to use their business for good, I think about it as we're on the same wavelength here. You know, we're we're both aware of ourselves to the degree that we we embrace this identity as more than just a job. It's something that requires just 100% commitment in order for us to be authentic and genuine, which actually is a word that gets thrown around a lot. Authenticity gets thrown around a lot. And it's not the same when you're just trying to glom onto a, you know, a trend. That's really not authentic. That's just marketing. And, and it's what I love about your approach is uh, that you make having a coffee shop and selling delicious coffee, um, you, you, you see it as a mission driven business and it's, and it's inseparable, right? Mission and values for you, you, you shouldn't be separating that from no matter what you're doing, you should be operating from mission and vision and values. Yes. Here, here's why. Also, there are people who open businesses that just say, "I just want to make a lot of money." Now, it depends on the business. If you're just manufacturing pencils, I, I guess you might be able to get away with it longer than if you were opening a coffee shop. For for a lot of people, the metric of success is the fact that they're making a lot of profit, and that's it. They don't care. And I, I think that forces you to sort of ignore the downstream impact of productivity with a lack of ethics or a lack of of relational grounding. And, and I, I think we as a society are impacted by that mentality downstream in that, you know, right now, for instance, we have a hard time hiring people and we have a staff shortage in, in hospitality. Well, it's a good, there's a good chance that a lot of the staff that we're having a hard time finding have been burned 
by bosses that have not been great bosses in the past who just wanted efficiency. They don't care uh, about relationships. They just care about people obeying what they say at all costs. And so they feel like, well, we're not going to get a job in that field anymore, or they become bosses and now they're going to act the same way because that's how they learned. And they don't have to stay in coffee. They go on to run factories and be lawyers. They go on to do any number of jobs in the world. And the way we illustrate what it is to be a leader in our businesses now will be what develops people's mindsets about what it is to be a leader in the future. We can't just say, you know, there's only one way to be successful and that's to be profitable. Yeah, it's one way, but there's this social good that comes from uh, focusing on hospitality, no matter what industry you happen to be in. And uh, in coffee shops, it's pretty clearly on display. That's why I focus on it so heavily. I love it. Lessons from the coffee shop for every leader in every industry. Chris DeFerio, thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Bruce, it was an honor and I'm really happy to be here. Oh, thank you so much. That's so cool. So great. In our next episode, I'll talk with Mike Smith, who's an incredible guy and a leader in sales at the Lockton Companies. Uh, we also have in common that we're both Pittsfield natives, and we went to junior high school together and high school together. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at GoTo underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.